Well, again, good morning. It's good to be together, isn't it? It's a good thing. Well, this morning I'm, I'm hoping that um, we're going to make, make it through um, at least part of three chapters of the book of Ezekiel. And, and I, want to, um, I want to cover a large chunk of Scripture all together this morning because these chapters go together. They, to be rightly understood, they need to be understood together. And, and so this morning, we're going to be taking a look at Ezekiel chapter 35 and 36. And, and probably next week, we're going, to, we're going to end up looking at, at Ezekiel chapter 37. But these three chapters, they go together. They have a, a singular message that they're going to proclaim to, to God's people who, if you remember, as Ezekiel writes, they are defeated they are captives in a foreign land. They, their, their nation has been defeated. Their capital has now been destroyed. And they are slaves in far off Babylon. And yet the message that Ezekiel brings to them is that God isn't done with them. And that though their nation is defeated, though their capital has been destroyed, their God is not defeated. Their God has not been destroyed. Their God is unstoppable and he has a plan for their future. He has a work that he desires to do in them and through them. And what he said he is going to do, he is going to do. And so that's what we're going to see there in Ezekiel 35, 36, and eventually 37. So open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 35. Find that. And we're going we're gonna to dive right in, beginning with verse 1. It says this, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. He says, Son of man, God, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Mount Seir, Edom. Edom, one of the neighboring countries there to Israel. And God says, prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste, and I will lay your cities to waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And now God has already spoken to Edom as well as to Tyre and to Sidon and, and to Egypt and so many of the other surrounding nations. We've, we've gone through chapter after chapter of God telling these nations, I'm going to deal with you. So why here? Do you wonder? Why here does God come back and, and again begin to address Edom? Well, it's because he is speaking to Israel and he wants Israel to know that they have a future. Here's how this works. You see, Israel had been defeated. They, they, their nation had been destroyed by Babylon. And Edom had come along after Babylon and, and they, had, they had looked at the situation and they thought, God is done here. God has left the building. 
These people that were once protected by God, empowered by God, they no longer have God. God has left them. He has abandoned them. And they are now just there for the picking. We can take advantage of them. We can take their land. We can take the fruit that will come from their orchards, the grapes that will come from their vines. And we can take it all for ourselves. But here the Lord is speaking to Edom and he says, no, no, you don't get it. I've been disciplining my people. I've been dealing with my people. And yes, I've removed the nation. I have sent them as captives into a foreign land. And yes, I've even destroyed the city of Jerusalem. But I'm not done with them. And the land that I gave them is still theirs. The place that I gave them is to be held for them. And so here the Lord judges Edom for trying to eradicate Israel. You see, after Jerusalem's defeat by Babylon, Edom had come in to finish them off. They had actually sought to kill the survivors, to kill those who were fleeing from the Babylonians as they defeated Jerusalem. Understand this, Israel belongs to God. And though he has disciplined them severely, yet he disciplined them for their good. And he will also defend them. He will defend them against any and all who come against them because he loves them and he has plans for them. And that didn't change when God allowed Babylon to come and to discipline them. Do you remember clear back to Genesis chapter 12? It was there when when God took Abraham. And remember Abraham, he was the beginning of the nation of Israel. It it all came out of Abraham and his family. And back there in in Genesis 12, God had said to Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And he said, let me tell you how I am going to deal with this nation. He said this, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. God says to Abraham, God says to Israel, I will be on your side. I will care for you. I will intervene on your behalf because you are mine. It was true when it was just Abraham. It was true in Ezekiel's day. And dear friends, it is true today as well. Israel belongs to God. And God has said in his word that he will bless those who bless his people, that he will curse those who dishonor them. Well, Edom, Mount Seir, was dishonoring Israel. So the Lord says to Edom, pick up in verse 5, because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword, at the time of their calamity and at the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you and I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation and I will cut it off 
and I will cut off from it all who come and go, and I will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and on your valleys and in your ravines, those slain with the sword shall fall, and I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your city shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you said these two nations and these two countries, speaking of Israel and Judah, that they shall be mine and we will take possession of them, although, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to the anger and envy that you showed because of your hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I judge you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I've heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying they are laid desolate, they are are given us to devour. And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me. I heard it. Thus says the Lord God, while the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate. Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it, they will know that I am the Lord. So Edom made the decision. They made the choice that they would be against Israel. They would take advantage of, of Israel's position of weakness in the midst of the discipline that the Lord was bringing upon them. Since Babylon had defeated Israel, they figured God must have rejected them, but Edom was wrong. Edom was wrong. Even in the midst of their rebellion, they were God's chosen people. And coming against God's chosen people is the same thing as coming against God. Do we understand that? You come against somebody's kids, you're coming against them, right? We know how this works. You come after someone's little ones, you're going to be tangling with the parent, right? And this is what the Lord is saying, saying they're mine. Yes, they're misbehaving little brats and I'm dealing with them. But they're my misbehaving little brats. Coming against God's people is the same thing as coming against God. And that, dear friends, is something that we do not want to do. Edom should have thought of that. And quite honestly, so should we. So should we. You know, Mike prayed this morning. That, that we would remember the fact that we are children of the king. And that is, a, that is an important thing for us to remember, isn't it? Doesn't that have an impact on, on, on how you see yourself and how you behave and who you are when you understand, when you realize that you belong to the king, that you are a child of the king? But I wonder this, I wonder how would it change the way that we treat each other if we always remembered that those whom we are dealing with are children of the king. If we always remembered that we are dealing with God's kids, would we treat each other more kindly? Would we esteem each other more highly? Would we serve each other more willingly? Would we see each other differently? Dear friends, 
when we undercut, when we snub, or we avoid another human being, think about this. We are undercutting, we are snubbing, we are avoiding someone whom Christ our Savior knows and loves, someone whom he willingly died for, someone whom he is seeking to draw to himself. Oh, how I think it might change how we treat each other if we remember that we all belong to him. Chapter 36, verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. So first we, we, we spoke to the mountains of Mount Seir, but now it's to the mountains of Israel. And he says, and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy said of you, aha, and therefore, and the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and you shall become the talk and evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, the desolate wastes and the deserted cities, which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession and, wholehearted, and with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make its pasture lands a prey. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and hills and the ravines and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. So, so here we have the, the exact same message that we found in chapter 35. But rather than being spoken to Edom, this time it is spoken to Israel. Before, the Lord said to Edom, man, you're messing with my people and I'm not okay with that. I'm going to deal with you. And you hear the Lord says to Israel, I know that they've come after you. I know that they have sought to destroy you. But I'm gonna care for you. I'm going to deal with them. God, God says to Israel, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. I've disciplined you. I've disciplined you even severely. But God says that he is for his people, that he has a plan for them, that he will defend them. You know, the Lord says it even more plainly in, in Jeremiah chapter 29, a verse that you're probably very familiar with. There in verses 10 and 11, it says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. I will visit you. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Now, context here matters. Can I say this? That is one of the most abused verses in the whole of Scripture. People grab that and they just throw it all over the place without any, any thought of context. And context matters. Context matters. People will take this verse and they will apply it to us today. But understand this. Think about this for a minute. Think about this for a minute. You couldn't even apply that verse to Israel a couple years earlier. Think about what God is saying here. God is saying to his people, man, I've got plans for you. They are plans to prosper you and not to harm you. What was God's message to Israel a couple years earlier? Just, just a few chapters back in the, in the ministry of Ezekiel, was God saying to Israel, I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you? No. God was saying, listen, you've sinned and I'm getting out my belt. I'm going to deal with you, God says. You can't even apply this verse to Israel several months or several years prior to when Jeremiah speaks it. Now understand this. The God who loves Israel is a God who loves us, right? Hey, can we say within context that God loves us? You know, maybe grab onto John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God does love us, yes, absolutely. That is not something that, that at one time is true, but at another time isn't. God loves us. And God is actively at work in our lives. Those of us who belong to him, he is working all things to our good, is he not? Romans chapter 8, there verse 28, another much abused verse. People will quote that saying that, that what that means is nothing bad will ever happen to you. And they'll throw Jeremiah right in there with it and say, man, listen, I, I know you got cancer. I know you just lost your car. I know your dog died. I, I know that, that your house is being repossessed. But don't worry, because nothing bad will ever happen to you because you're a Christian. Romans 8, 28, right? At Jeremiah chapter 29. But that isn't what it says. Romans tells us that God works in the midst of all things for our good. But I guarantee you, you will not like some of the ways that God works for your good. Because he's a good parent and he puts broccoli on your plate. But God is saying to Israel, at this point in their history, when they are captives, when their capital has been destroyed, when all their hope is gone, God says to them, I have plans for you. I have good plans for you. Jeremiah is more specific. Jeremiah says, listen, 70 years, okay, sorry. It's going to be 70 years, but at the end of 70 years, I'm going to bring you back to this place. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you incredibly. 
verse 8. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The city shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt, and I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful, and I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and you will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. In the midst of their deepest darkness, God says to his people, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. The land will be abundantly fruitful. The cities will grow. Things will go well for you. I'm going to bring you home, and I'm going to make it a great place to be. Notice something here. Notice the why. Notice the why. Notice that God's purpose, both when he judges, because he's just spoken several words of judgment to Edom, but also when he blesses, as he's spoken these blessings over Israel, his purpose is always that we might know him. That we might know him more. Stuff goes on in your life, and you find yourself, don't you, wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? Maybe, I, I, maybe I'm the only one who does that. But I often, in the midst of circumstances, find myself wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing in my life? Oh, I'll tell you this. The simple answer, the simple answer is always going to be that God is seeking to draw me to himself. Through the hard things, through the good things, through all things. It, that's what I was made for. That's what you were made for. That is our greatest need, is to, to know God more. That, that is our best situation, to be in a place where we know the Lord intimately. That's why Colossians chapter 1, there in verse 16, it says this, by him, that is by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created. Now, don't miss this. All things were created through him and for him. Dear friends, here is what we were made for. Here is what God is about, connecting us with himself. We were made not just to know about God, but to truly know God. And so everything that God does is aimed at growing our knowledge of him and our closeness to him and our love for him. That we might know him more and we might experience what it is that we were made for. Verse 12. I will let people walk on you. He's speaking to the land there, not to the people. 
Even my people Israel, they will walk on the land. And, and that's, a, that, that's a phrase that insinuates that they then have possession of the land. They have ownership of the land. He says, and they shall possess you and you shall be their inheritance and you shall no longer bereave them of their children. Thus says the Lord God, because they, that is the nations, say to you, you devour people. They say, oh, that land, it's a bad land. It devours people. And you bereave your nation of children, the nations say, Therefore, you shall no longer devour people and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. And I will not let you hear any more the reproach of the nations. And you shall no longer bear the disgrace of the peoples and no longer cause your nation to stumble, declares the Lord. So God is speaking to the captives of Israel. And he says, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, fundamentally change this place that I've given you. I'm going to change this promised land from a place that, that is, has been difficult for you. It has cost you your children. It has thinned your ranks. And I'm going to make it a place that is so abundant, that is, is such a wonderful place to live, that, that you will have excess that you will have all that you need. God is going to bless his people by not only bringing them home to the land that he gave them, but by changing that land, making it a blessing to them. He tells these, these people that, that this day is going to come when he is going to bring them home and that that day will be a good day. Now, in the near term, they will return from captivity and they will resettle in the land. As, as Jeremiah told them, in 70 years, 70 years of captivity, then they would return to the land. And, and much later, they would actually return again. And much later again, they will return yet another time at the end of all things. And then they will be there unharassed. It's interesting because parts of, parts of what the Lord promises them have come to pass already. We saw that after the Babylonian captivity, the people came back into the land, but they certainly did not live there unharassed. Oh, they were still subjugated by the Persians and then by the Greeks and then by the Romans. And then they were banished from the land yet again, only to be regathered again in our era of history in 1948 that the nation is reconstituted and the people are brought back again. And yet today, I don't think that we would say that they live in the land unharassed, anything but that. And yet God says that the day will come, that the time will come when he will fulfill this promise and that they will live there unharassed. You know, the Lord gives us a similar promise. I can't, I can't read this hopeful message that God gives to his people of a day of peace and of plenty without thinking of the promises that the Lord makes to us as well. You, you do realize that this place is not our home, right? I mean, well, we've got a great place to live. Everyone always says that, right? You know, that we, we've got a great place to live, and we do. But please understand, this isn't heaven. This isn't our home. One day, 
we will be with the Lord. We will be in that place that we were meant to be, made to be. And we will be there for all eternity. And there, there will be no more sin and no more sorrow. If living's hard right now, if life is, is painful or difficult right now, remember this, hang in there. There's something far better coming. Remember what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There he talks about the, the difficulties of this life. He calls them light and momentary affliction, right? That's how you feel about it, right? And on those days when you don't want to crawl out of bed, on those days when you just feel like hanging it up, giving up, giving in, Paul calls them light and momentary afflictions. And I have to admit, his were way worse than anything I've ever experienced. He says that these things are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight of glory that we will experience in heaven that he says is beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? Here's what Paul is saying. He says, remember this isn't heaven. That shouldn't be hard, right? It should not be hard to remember that this isn't heaven. Just wait for Monday morning. You'll remember this isn't heaven. But he says that in light of that, in light of that fact, we need to live this life knowing that there's something far better ahead. We need to put our eyes on what is unseen, that eternal future, than rather having our life and our, our investment and our focus be on the seen things, the things that we do see within this life. We need to live our lives knowing that the only things that we can take with us into eternity are our walk with Christ and other people. Our walk with Christ and other people. Think about that, friends. Think about that. We live so focused on the stuff and the tasks, the busyness, the pleasures, but the only things that we will take with us is a closeness with the Lord and an investment in those who will be coming along with us. Maybe you're concerned, maybe you're worried that, that you won't be good enough to get into heaven, to deserve heaven. And I would just say that if you think that your behavior can get you in, you should be worried. You, you definitely should be worried. Look at what the Lord says about Israel. Look about at, at how he deals with them because it's the same way that he deals with us. Look at verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways, in other words, how they lived, and by their deeds, the things that they did. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Ezekiel, really? We have to go back there again. 
And yet it's, it's the same analogy that, that Isaiah uses as well. Uh, really what they're saying is this, is that we're all guilty. We are all guilty. This is not an unusual thing. We are all unclean. Romans 3.23 puts it out for us very plainly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, verse 18, I poured out my wrath upon them. So God says this, when they were in the land, they behaved so badly that I had to deal with them. I had to pour out my wrath upon them. Why? For the blood that they had shed in the land, the blood that they had shed, the murder, the, the way that they had dealt with each other and for the idols with which they had defiled it, worshiping false gods. He says, I scattered them to the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. If we think that our behavior is going to get us into heaven, we've got another thing coming. Our behavior will get us nothing but judgment, condemnation. And that's what Israel got. And God says, but when they came to the nations, when they were dispersed to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. And so basically the Lord is saying, man, you're giving me a bad name because I've, I've said that you're mine, that you belong to me. And yet I have had to remove you from the land. And you're making me look bad, God says. He says, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they had come. They couldn't hold up their end of the deal. They could not perform to the standard that was required. And so, as guilty as they are, Here's where hope comes in. And friends, this is where hope comes in for us as well because we can't perform up to par. We can't perform to the standard that is laid before us. Verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. His holy name for who he is. It's because of who God is, not because of how we have performed that God is going to act. He says, you've profaned my name among the nations. He says, but I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God says, I'm going to, I am going to vindicate my holiness in front of the nations through you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you. He says, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all countries and I will bring you into your own land. So the Lord says that he is going to return his scattered people to the land that he had given them and that he is going to bring the exile to an end, not because they deserve it, they didn't, but because he is good and because he is holy. Understand, friends, our salvation, it works the same way. 
We are not saved because we're good. It's not like God looked at you and said, well, you're trying hard enough, so I'm just going to kind of give you the boost you need to get over the top. We are saved not because of anything that we have earned, but because of God's goodness, because of God's mercy, because of God's holiness. The old hymn gets it right. How does it go? Our, hill, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And man, Scripture agrees. Scripture agrees. Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. It's because of his goodness. It's because of his love. Because of the kindness of God that we're saved. Here's what the Lord promises to do for us one day. He promises to do one day for the people of Israel what he has done for us in Christ already. He promises to do for a people who are undeserving, unable, and unfaithful. Pick up in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you and will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. One day God says to his people Israel, I'm going to cleanse you. Remember, these people who are in captivity because of their idolatry, God says to them, I'm going to cleanse you and you will be clean. I'm going to give you a new heart and you will begin to walk in my ways. Here Ezekiel speaks about what will happen for Israel when Christ returns. At the end of all things, when, when Christ returns and he rules and he reigns here upon earth and David is his king over Israel and all of God's people then will be cleansed they will be made new. As, as Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six. in that day, all Israel will be saved. That, that's a wild thing, isn't it? That's a, that's a crazy thought. Now, he's not saying that all Jews from all time will just automatically be saved, but he's saying that all those who have gathered together under Christ the Messiah during the millennial reign, during that time at the end, that they will be saved by the grace of God, just like we are. It's the same way we get saved, by the grace of God. 
It's what Christ has done for us. Because of the cross, we are cleansed by his blood. Because of the cross, we, we become new creations in Christ. Notice a couple of things of what Ezekiel says here. He makes it very clear. First of all, it's very clear it's a work of grace, isn't it? They did not deserve this. And no one earns or deserves it. But secondly, also notice this. He washes us and we're clean. He renews us and we are renewed. We have a new heart within us. We get a new life, a, a new source of life, a new way of life, a new reason for living. You get the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. Dear friends, there is a huge difference between religion and resurrection. We can become religious. We can get a new set of rules to follow. We can have a new facade that we present to the world, but that is nothing more than dead religion. There is something else. It is resurrection. It is that gift of salvation that God gives that changes us at our core. Some of us may, may not have clarity on this. We can be wondering, well, what are they talking about when they talk about this? Because all we've walked in our lives is religion. If there is nothing about your faith that can't just be explained by you being good, then what you've got is religion. What Scripture tells us is that by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the God God himself, almighty, immortal. He comes to dwell within us. If there is not some inexplainable power within your life, then I think it's time to ask if you have religion or resurrection. If your heart has not been changed, you know how you know when your heart's been changed? All those patterns of sin that we are so commonly walking down the path toward, when our hearts become changed, instead of attracting us, they begin to nauseate us. Oh, you still have to break the patterns. You still have to, have to put in the the, the process of confession and, and accountability and repentance and, and turning away. But that sin that has owned me, that for years I loved when I have a new heart, now I hate it. And I, I resent the fact that it has such control, that it has such a, a pull upon If I'm renewed, if I'm made new, there's a dynamic that is going on that cannot be explained just by me following a different set of rules. But there is a reality that the immortal God has intervened in my life and has chosen to take up his residence, Scripture says, within me. Notice too, 
the response to grace. Verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let, let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. You see, grace causes us, as I said, to hate our sin. We begin to view it differently. That thing that we once loved, now we begin to despise it. And as we, as we are changed by God and empowered by his Holy Spirit, well, we begin to do whatever it takes to break free of it. We confess it. We denounce it. We turn away from it. Grace transforms our hearts to be incompatible with our old ways with our old habits of sin. And so by the grace of God, we repent and God begins to rebuild our lives much as he rebuilds Israel. He promises them in, in verse 33, he says, thus says the Lord God on, that, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God tells Israel, he tells these people who are living in captivity, I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to rebuild. I'm not done with you. I'm going to bring you out of captivity. I'm going to change you at the core of your being. And I'm going to rebuild again. I'm going to be faithful to my promises, God says. Yes, he disciplined them. Yes, he dealt with their sin. But he also will do what he has promised and he will bring them back again. And that, that's what he does with us too, isn't it? Isn't that how he deals with us? He deals with our sin. And, and the more stubborn we are, the more reticent we are to let him deal with us, the, the further down that road he has to take us. And the harder the discipline comes. And yet he is faithful. He will not abandon. He will not leave us. And he will return us to that place that he has made us for. He will bring us to be with him. That's what all of this is about. It's about preparing us to be in his presence. All of this life, it, it isn't about the stuff. It isn't about the accomplishments. It isn't about, about this life in this world. But it's about preparing us for eternity. It's about bringing us to that place where we will be with the Lord for all eternity. Oh, that we would begin to see our lives through that lens. 
and allow it to change how we live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for your promises to Israel, God, your faithfulness to them. Father, I thank you for your promises to us, your faithfulness to us as well. Lord, we long to see you bring these promises to fruition to accomplish the work that you've promised to do with your people Israel. Because Lord, as we see it, we're encouraged and we're reminded of your faithfulness to us. Father, I pray for those this morning who are having a hard time seeing your faithfulness to them right now. God, that you'd remind them that going through hard things doesn't mean that you're unfaithful, but rather that you're working. God, that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would carry them, and through it all, that you'd draw them to yourself. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.